0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com The places where the Bible happened are real, and you can go and see them for yourself. When you do, you will never read the Bible the same way again. Learn more today at WayneStyles.com slash tours. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible, My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In this episode, we look at how to live the good life, and biblically speaking, good means something other than what the world means good. The world looks at external circumstances or money, which is never good enough to satisfy us, is it? No, the Apostle Peter's talking about a good that is truly good, in spite of the bad that's all around us. It's actually a focus on hope. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's get right into this week's podcast. I heard a funny story about uh, the abbot of a monastery, who's the head guy of a monastery, called in one of the novices, who's a newbie, so just get your terms right. So the abbot and the, the novice. The abbot of the monastery calls in this novice, And says, tomorrow morning, you're going to be doing the sermon at the chapel service. Well, the novice is terrified. He's never spoken in public before. He's absolutely mortified. And so the next morning, as he stood in the pulpit, his hands are shaking, his knees are trembling, his voice is quivering, and everyone's waiting for him to to begin the sermon. And instead, he just asks a question after a really long pause. He says, "Do do you know what I'm going to say? Well, of course they don't. So they all shake their heads no. And he says, well, neither do I. Let's bow for the benediction. (laughs) The abbot calls him into his office and says, I understand you were nervous. Tomorrow morning, give the sermon. Well, the poor novice is just mortified. The next day, uh, chapel service begins again, and the, the novice gets up. And he you know, his he's his he's shaking, his knees are shaking, his voice is quivering, and he asks the same question again after a really long pause. Do you know what I'm gonna say? Well, they were there yesterday, and so they shake their head. Yes. He says, Well, then there's no need for me to tell you. Let's bow for the benediction. <laughs> the abbot calls him in and says, Look. You're going to be in solitary confinement for 30 days if you don't preach the sermon in tomorrow's chapel. So, I mean, the next morning, chapel attendance was at an all time high. Everyone was wondering, what's this guy going to say? Voices quivering, knees are shaking, long pause, and finally he asked, Do you know what I'm going to say? Well, you know, half of them had been there before, and so this sort of had an idea, and they shook their heads yes, and the other half really had no idea. They shook their heads no. And so the novice says, well, let those who know tell those who don't, let's bow for the benediction. (laughs) You know, we can all relate to that guy's fear, but yet what wisdom in his simple cop-out, in his words, let those who know, Tell those who don't. We've got the best news on the planet. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins. Fully paid for them. And by faith, simply by believing that message, your sins are forgiven. Completely forgiven. It's a message that's so simple the child can understand it. So simple a child can believe it. And yet so simple that many will go their whole life offended by its simplicity and not humble themselves to believe it. Let those who know tell those who don't. Well, we know, don't we? We know that good news. And we have the obligation, let me say, we have the privilege of telling those who don't. Let's look together at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is of course written by the great apostle whom Chuck talked about today as one of the many in scripture who blew it. Peter walked with Jesus Christ for over three years, committed to the kingdom of God, but to his version of it. And when he realized that Jesus actually was going to die on the cross, in spite of Peter's urging him not to, Peter panicked, and in a moment where he was cornered, denied Jesus, only to find himself bitterly weeping that Jesus had told him that he did exactly what he predicted would happen. Peter was crushed, but after the resurrection, Jesus had a special one-on-one meeting with him. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ appeared to Cephas, to Peter, had a special personal meeting with him in which we aren't told what happened, but we know what happened. There was reconciliation. You know, the good news about the Lord Jesus is that the resurrected Christ is willing to have that personal meeting with each of us. You know, we get together as a big group, but there's also those moments where we're driving in the car or where we're alone in the closet or where we're walking down, where we catch ourselves in a moment of solitude and God shows up. The Lord Jesus shows up either to encourage us or in that initial moment to open our eyes to what before we were blind to and to help us understand our need for forgiveness and that he meets that need. First Peter has done such a great job at explaining to us the great salvation that we've inherited through Jesus Christ as well as the great privilege we have of living in honor of him. We've seen Peter writing to those of us who are believers, believers in the first century, but also here in the 21st, trying to live out their faith in a culture that's hostile to their faith. He's told us that we can laugh through the tears. That is, that we can have genuine joy as well as genuine sorrow because of our suffering and persecution side by side. And the reason we can is because we keep an eternal perspective, that we fix our hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to us at the coming of Christ, that our hope and our passion is not for Disney World. It's not for the weekend. It's not for the little simple things that are that are uh, fun, but then they go away like cotton candy. Our hope and passion is in the coming of Jesus because when he comes, he will take us. Uh, we'll be changed in an instant. It's it's our resurrection, whether we're living or dead. We will be resurrected in that moment. And we will be in a body that we will have forever. And we will uh, at least initially go to, to glory for at least seven years, seven years uh, of the tribulation of literal hell on earth. And then at the second coming of Christ, He returns and we with Him to... To uh, reign for a thousand years on this very planet. This very planet. Um, That's what I'm just so looking forward to. You know, it's one thing to look forward to Disneyland, it's another thing to look forward to the kingdom of God. And that's our genuine hope. Peter challenges us as he has taken us through this book. Just think through where we've been so far leading up to this end of chapter 3. As I mentioned, he challenges us to think um, big picture, and one of the ways that he does that is to say, look, be committed to the things that last forever. People, God's people, and God's Word. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 2, he gives us that wonderful metaphor of a hungry baby. And I've been thinking about this this week, and I know we've already taught through chapter 2, and so, you know, we're just supposed to leave that there in chapter 2. But think about it. Think about this wonderful metaphor, because I forget what what, what day it was this week, but uh, a hunger pang hit me, and I thought, oh, I better go eat something. And then I thought about this verse, because Peter wants us to think about this verse whenever we have hunger pangs. He gives us that illustration of a child who has this has this longing for the pure milk of the Word like a newborn baby. So try that this week. Whenever you get a little pang of hunger, you know, it's before lunch or it's even after lunch and you want some more lunch, whatever it is, you get that little pang of hunger. Change that in your mind to, I need to have a hunger for the Bible. Why do we eat? We eat physically because we need it physically to survive. And because we have pangs that cue us in, you need to go eat. Whenever you are discouraged, whenever you are lonely, whenever you begin to feel arrogant, this is a pang as well. And it should be a pang to take us to the Bible. So whenever you're struggling, saying, this is God's pang, this is God's spiritual pang to draw me to the word, and like a baby, like a little baby, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. Wonderful metaphor! I just love that metaphor. And he continues on through chapter two to tell us to focus on these eternal things, um, and then he gives us a few realms to. Apply the Bible. It's not just enough to know the Word and grow in knowledge of the Word, but grow in application of it. And he gives us several realms that we need to live out the Bible. And they're very practical. First of all, he gives us um, He gives us the, the public realm, that is, in our behavior toward the government, there in chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 13. Then he gives us the professional realm, if you want to take the timeless principle, as he speaks to servants um, submitting to the master. Or from our perspective, it would be uh, our bosses. So we've got the the public realm with the government, the professional realm with the vocation, and then he uh, starts chapter 3 with the private realm with regard to the home. And every one of these situations is, is a context in which it isn't ideal. You're in a situation where you're under an authority that's unjust and in some sense ungodly. And he gives us the example of Jesus at the end of chapter 2 who how did he deal with the unjust situation that he was in? Verse 23 tells us he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus said, "Father, you see it, you know the truth. I am going to I'm not going to revile in return even though people say these bad things to me. I'm not going to return that. I'm going to trust that with you and leave that with you and let you deal with it in your time and in your way. So this is how we're to deal with these three areas. And then he sort of sums it up. So let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, Kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Let's stop there. He gets real practical in his summary, and when he says to sum up all of you, he's referring back to all the different categories, whether it's those of us as citizens submitting to the government, those employees or servants submitting to masters, whether you're a wife, whether you're a husband, whether you are a, any in any capacity as a Christian. He says, to sum it up, all of you, all of us, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble. And then he gives us that example of Jesus once again in verse 9, not returning evil for evil. You might want to jot in your margin Proverbs 20, verse 3. Proverbs 20, verse 3. In fact, flip over to Proverbs 20, verse 3. Doug told me we have a little extra time today, we could go to twelve thirty, and I thought, oh that's great. So we'll we've got time to look at Proverbs. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not gonna go to twelve thirty. Proverbs that's like close to Psalms, isn't it? Proverbs twenty, verse three. It says this keeping away from strife is an honor. For a man, but any fool will quarrel. Literally, the word quarrel means burst out. They lose it. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Essentially, the text is challenging us not to spring to the defense of our honor, but to find honor in peace. Find your honor and peace. Back to First Peter. He, that's basically what he's telling us. First Peter 3.9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. This isn't just self-denial. It is self-denial, but it isn't just self-denial. It's a denial of justice. And that's tough for us, especially today, where any sort of slight or offense, and we, we find ourselves in court, with a, a lawsuit Peter is saying it's okay if if every little bit of justice doesn't happen this side of eternity remember Jesus he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously the father's not going to forget the father's watching he knows that you've been slighted he understands that you're struggling with an unjust unjust situation he knows every detail And it's all going to be okay in, in God's time. It doesn't have to be made right here and now. Peter says, not returning insult for insult, but try this, giving a blessing instead. Instead of responding in kind, respond in a way they don't expect. Be a blessing. Be gracious. And then he tells us why. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You were called to inherit a blessing. The word, therefore, inherit, is a word that means that you're getting something that you didn't earn, just like an inheritance. It's to receive something of considerable value which has not been earned. Just like Christ, in his gracious way, gave it up to the Father, we realize that one day it'll all be made right. Peter quotes from Psalm 34. You notice there in verses 10, 11, and 12, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. And he's quoting from Psalm 34. And when he says, um, he says, uh, let's see, the word keep, you must keep yourself, the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil. The word there, keep, doesn't mean that you just have the option to, to do this or to not do this, as far as your tongue goes. But it literally means to keep from continuing. It's a, it's a continually present activity. This is something that you continue to do. To cease from an activity in which you might be engaged in, go ahead and stop that right now. And the word that he uses here for turn away from evil literally means to lean away. And I kind of got a picture of this not long ago as I was riding on our riding lawnmower. You know when you ride on a riding lawnmower and you don't want to weed it underneath the tree, so you try to get the riding lawnmower as close as you can under the tree, and you have to lean away from the tree or the branches will get you. I get that picture when I, when I read this word in the original language that Peter means when he says to turn away from evil or literally to lean away from evil. I mean, your 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 lawnmower is going the direct direction of this, but you lean away from it. You may be in a situation where there is evil present or there's temptation present. Lean away from it. Turn away from it is what Peter is saying. Have a very intentional um, leaning away from that which is evil. Notice also, Peter goes from talking to all of us to talking to each of us. In verse 8, he says, all of you. But then when he begins quoting the psalm, he gets very personal. He says, for the one who desires life must keep his tongue from evil and his or her tongue from speaking deceit. He must turn away. He must seek peace. So we're meant to take this personally it's not just a message for everybody and thus a message for nobody. It's a message for each of us. Every single one of us is this is the challenge. If you want a life that is good, you want, you want, do you desire life? Do you desire to love and to see good days? Interesting how Peter says, here's the way that happens. It starts by how you talk. And it's how you talk. It's how I talk. His tongue from evil. Not just everybody, but the individual. We're meant to take it personally. How we respond with our words, and that points to our own hearts. I read some statements that were written by children about the Bible. These are great. Um, these are actually written by children about various stories in Scripture, and I, I some of them... I'm not going to share with you because they're, um, the way that they're spelled is what makes them funny, and so I'd have to spell them, and it would sort of kill. The, t- the timing wouldn't work on it. But some of these work just as they are. And so. But here's an example. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Isn't that great? Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. <laughs> oh, Yes. This one's good, too. Samson slayed the Philistines with the axe of the apostles. Isn't that great? Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread without any ingredients. I like to see that. The Egyptians were all drowned in the dessert. <laughs> Afterward, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. The Ten Amendments. The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. <laughs> the seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then, then Joshua told... I uh, can't read this because I'm crying. And then Joshua told, led the Hebrews in the Battle of Jericho. that's good the greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines kind of a Freudian slip there Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption (laughs) oh that's good the epistles were wives of the apostles. One of the opossums was St. Matthew, who was also a taxi man. St. Paul cavorted to Christianity. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. I had to look up acrimony because I didn't know what it meant. But I'll let you look it up, too. Um, a Christian should have only one spouse. This is called monotony. <laughs> oh, that one's great. And here's the final one. Jesus enunciated the golden rule, which says, do, to one, do, do one to others before they do one to you. What I love best about these statements is it's not kids trying to be funny. It's just kids doing their best to repeat what they think they've heard. Of course, they've misheard it, and that's what makes it so great. But it becomes not so funny when we think about the fact that sometimes in our Christian life, we're doing the same thing. We're just kind of repeating what we've heard. Our faith isn't simple ritual or rote. It's not empty thinking. It's precisely because we think that we live the way we do. Jesus taught a very similar thing in the Gospel of Luke. I think it's chapter 6 when he said to love your enemies and to bless those who curse you. And and in that context, he gives the golden rule, which is what we call the golden rule, that is to treat others the way you want to be treated, which is basically what Peter is saying here. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but... But do like you want someone to do to you when you give somebody evil. Wouldn't it be great if they responded to you with a blessing? How that would just disarm you? This is what Jesus taught back in Luke, and it's what Peter is teaching now as well. Why should we refuse to return evil for evil? Why bite our tongues? Why lean away from evil? Well, look at verse 12. We're told why. For, or because, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We do what we do because it pleases the Lord, and we're given sort of an anthropomorphic picture here of God, that is, assigning to the Lord who has, the Father who has no body, attributes of of a human, his eyes, his ears. These are metaphors that describe his attention to us. His eyes are on us, are toward the righteous. His ear attends to their prayer. Literally, the Greek text says his, his ears are into their prayers, which is a neat picture when you think of just he's so listening to, so attuned to what we're praying, that he's into our prayers. He's right there in the midst of it. And then the the flip side is also true. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he just completely turns his face the other direction. We're told this is why. If you want a life that is good life, to see good days, it begins by how we talk by how we respond to the evil that's done to us. And we're given a reason, not just to have good life and good days, but because the eyes of the Lord are watching. Hey everybody, Wayne here. This podcast has been going for months now. And if you've not left a review, you know, your review could really help other busy people benefit from this content. That's because one of the main ways that new listeners find the Live the Bible podcast is through listener reviews. So, would you take just a couple of minutes right now to leave a review? You can do so at waynestyles.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. And now, back to the message. To see good days, it begins by how we talk, by how we respond to the evil that's done to us. And we're given a reason, not just to have good life and good days, but because the eyes of the Lord are watching. The ears of the Lord are attuned to our prayers and to the prayers of the righteous, meaning those who commit to do what Peter is saying. God pays attention to people like that. And he really, really is honored when we honor him in that way. You want the good life, Peter asks, here's how to live it. And with that same thought, he says in verse 13, he asks, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, this is a kind of a best-case scenario. We would say nobody. And generally speaking, like he's told us with with the government back in chapter 2, verse 13, the governors are sent uh, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. You don't want to be stopped by a policeman? Don't speed. It's that simple. But, so his question is, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, we all know, you know, there's plenty of people wanting to harm us precisely because we're doing good. Because our life is a a conviction of theirs. It's a contradiction of their worldview. And so we will be persecuted we're told that anyone who desires to live a righteous life in Christ will be persecuted. And so Peter goes on and says, Ideally, verse 13, no one would harm you, but, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. When we do what's right and then we get mistreated, the temptation is, well, why be good if it profits me nothing? Again, Peter says, keep eternity in mind. When you suffer for doing right, when you're intimidated by those who don't believe in Jesus, that pleases God, and you're blessed. In fact, Jesus said a very similar thing in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a cross-reference there in your margin, or if you don't, you might want to write in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 10. Matthew five ten, where basically Jesus says this similar thing. Blessed are you when people persecute you because of my name, for the kingdom of God. Is yours. Jesus urges people in the Sermon on the Mount when you when you suffer for the things of Christ, keep in mind the kingdom of God is coming. Peter is saying the same thing. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You will be blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and uh, do not be troubled. So he again he's quoting from Isaiah, and if you read that context, it says to fear God rather than men. And as Peter wrote this, I can't help but wonder if he thought about his own life. Keep your hand here in 1 Peter 3 and turn back to Acts chapter 5. Look at one incident that occurred in Peter's life where he actually applied his own message here. It always has seemed sort of strange when I've read this, but having read this now in context of 1 Peter, it makes a little more sense. Acts chapter 5, the very end of the chapter, the last three verses, verse forty. 41 and 42. The context is Peter and the rest of the apostles were arrested, and they take the advice of the the Pharisee named Gamaliel, verse 40. They took his advice, meaning the rest of the council that wanted to condemn the apostles. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah. Notice how they responded to suffering. They rejoiced that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. This is exactly Back in 1 Peter now, this is exactly what Peter is teaching. Even if you should suffer, 1 Peter 3.14, for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. They considered it a blessing to have suffered for the name of Jesus. And rather than be intimidated or troubled, Peter gives the alternative, verse 15. Don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled, verse 15. But here's what you do do. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. The word there, sanctify, simply means to set something apart to set Jesus apart. We have a lot of things in our hearts, a lot of things that vie for the attention of our hearts. Peter is saying, Jesus, among the many things that's in your heart, set him apart. Let him be completely unique all by himself, set him apart, sanctify him as Lord. He is the master. He is the one that calls the shots. In your heart, set Christ apart from everything else. Make him the total, unequivocal Lord and master of your heart. And he gives us one way that we can do this. He says, always be ready to give an answer to anybody who asks you for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to give a defense. Peter uses a word that a defendant would make before a judge. But don't misunderstand that that by using that term for defense that Peter is saying being defensive or in any way being rude or caustic, our preparation ready to respond is not a a tit-for-tat type of response. It's not responding evil for evil or insult for insult, but with a blessing instead. In fact, he says, when you prepare this, do this. With gentleness and reverence. You want to be able to explain the hope that is in you in a way that gives your message a platform on which it can be accepted. The platform of the gospel is our lives. And if you're sharing, if I'm sharing Jesus Christ with somebody, but they know that I'm really kind of a jerk. They're not going to listen to the gospel. But if I have had a, a, a reputation with them or a relationship with them or interaction with them over time where they realize, you know, Wayne is a, a, is a gentle man. Wayne is a, is a respectful man. So now when I have the opportunity and they ask me, I can share with them, well, let me tell you about the hope that I have. It's all because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Then all of a sudden, I have a platform to share from. This is true in any relationship, by the way. This is not just true in a relationship of evangelism. This is true with the most basic relationship of evangelism, and that's children and parents uh, or, or children and grandparents. Think about the reverence and the gentleness that gives a platform for the gospel in every relationship that you're involved in. Our behavior gives words their platform. Like the novice of the monastery said, let those who know, tell those who don't. This is exactly what Peter is saying. Be ready. Always be ready. Now, he's not saying you got to... You'd be an apologist or that you've got to be able to answer every question. What about the heathen in Africa? Well, how can a good God allow evil? Well, what about all the suffering in the world? You may know the answers to those questions, but that's not what Peter's saying be prepared for. Peter's saying be prepared for the hope that you have personally. Why are you specifically having hope for the future? We need We need an answer to that. And the simple answer is the gospel because Jesus has died for our sins and he promises that he's coming again. That's hope. Longtime British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge tells about how he met, met Mother Teresa one time while filming a documentary about her life. Muggeridge was very impressed with uh, Teresa as looking at her work, but he couldn't accept her faith. Now, whether or not You want to believe Mother Teresa was a believer or not based on her doctrine? I don't know. Honestly, only the Lord knows that. But in this particular interaction with Muggeridge, she nailed it. And I want to read what uh, she wrote to him. Um, One time, uh, Teresa was visiting London, and she actually went with Muggeridge on a walk. And Muggeridge was saying, here's the reason that I can't believe in Christ. It's because they're Christians. And he began to rail on the church. And Teresa listened to him, and later she wrote Malcolm a letter. And this is what she said. I'll just read part of it. She said, I think I better understand you now. I'm sure that you will understand beautifully everything if you will only become a little child in God's hands. He loves you so much as to give Jesus to die for you and for me. Christ is longing to be your food Surrounded with fullness of living food, you allow yourself to starve. The personal love Christ has for you is infinite. The small difficulty you have regarding his church is finite. Overcome the finite with the infinite. Christ has created you because he wants you. How beautifully said, and so appropriate. In fact, just eight years before Muggeridge died in 1990, he trusted Christ. He finally overcame his objections, and he even joined the church. (laughs) But you know, uh, Teresa had a platform on which she could share the gospel with Malcolm. This is why Peter says in verse 16 that it's important that we keep, keep a good conscience. By keeping a good conscience, he means we keep good behavior. That's It's the same thing in in the context for Peter. If you have a good conscience, it's because you have good behavior and you have a platform on which the gospel can have uh, a voice. Keeping a good conscience is, is why we share. Now look at verse 17. Here is a verse that you will never see on a plaque in a Christian bookstore. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Anybody got that hanging in their home? <laughs> we don't either because they don't make those signs. But right there it is, right in the Bible. Anybody that ever says that it's never God's will that we struggle or in some sense it's never God's will that we suffer, look at 1 Peter 3.17. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. So if you've got to pick a way to suffer, and by the way, we all suffer. We're either going to suffer for doing right or we're going to suffer for doing wrong. Let's choose to suffer for doing what's right, if God should will it so. I'm currently reading Job again, and that book is a challenge. Uh, working my way through that book. But aren't we glad for the first couple of chapters of Job? That give us the big picture you know job job and job's friends and Job's wife didn't have the understanding of job one and two that is of God and Satan having this conversation about job and basically job's suffering being uh, you know, I don't know what's it say, you want to call it a divine wager that it almost seemed like a contest for the Lord was so so pleased with Job's righteousness that he mentioned him to Satan. I hope the Lord never does that for me. <laughs> Have you considered my servant Wayne? Shh, don't tell anyone about me. <laughs> but Job suffered, and it clearly was God's will. Why? Well, Job sort of asked that too. And he didn't get a big question why. But one thing Job did get is Job got a greater understanding of the sovereignty of God. Job basically ended by saying, you know, I don't, I don't know why, but I don't need to know why. I only need to know that you're in control. And that's where we need to land too. It's better, Peter says, that God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing for what is wrong. We may not know the why behind our suffering, and we don't have to. We just need to know that God is in control. He is in complete control. And verse 18, now Peter illustrates what he's taught us. He says, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Um different translations render this different ways. And I think the, the if you have the New American Standard, it says, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, lowercase s, meaning in Jesus' human spirit. I think the NIV said he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit, capital S, meaning the Holy Spirit. Both theologically are accurate, but I think as far as the context goes here, it might be better to understand what, what Peter is writing that, Peter, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. Now, how else are you put to death? So for him to say he was put to death in the flesh, he's saying Jesus physically died. But made alive in the Spirit. Okay, so now we must be talking about Jesus' uh, Spirit as well. So it's not just that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, but Christ... but. Peter's making the point that Jesus was put to death in the body, but at the same time was made alive by the Spirit. Why would that need to be said? Remember what Jesus shouted at the uh, just before he died. He said, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. He's surrendering the human part of who he was into the hands of God. By the way, into the hands of the Father who... by according to Jesus' own words, had just forsaken him. That Jesus entered into spiritual death. That is, he entered into that separation from the Father that he had never had before, and he had to endure that spiritual death because that was the ultimate payment for our sins. And in that moment of being separated from the Father, when he cried out the words of the psalmist, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment, and then in the death of Christ, that our sins were paid for. But also, if we want to get real persnickety in the grammar, Christ died for sins once for all. And look at the substitution here. The just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. So Christ died. There's the main verb. And then these these participles explain what happened at the time that he died. He died having been put to death in the flesh, but having been made alive by the Spirit. In other words, at the moment of Jesus' death, not only did he die physically, but that separation from the Father was gone, and he was made alive by the Spirit. And now he is reunited with the Father. And so we're told in verse 19, immediately Jesus went, in which he also went, in, in other words, in his now made alive Spirit, his reconciled spirit with the Father spiritually, he went alive and made proclamation to the spirits, that is, the dead humans, now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Peter is using this this illustration of... Uh, of of Noah to say what Jesus did when he, in between his death and his resurrection. You know, the Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. Well, maybe Hades, we could go that far, because nobody's in hell yet, according to Revelation. Everyone, death and Hades dump into the lake of fire, but we won't get into all that. But my point is simply to say that between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he wasn't just, you know, twiddling his thumbs waiting for Sunday morning. He went, we're told, and actually proclaimed to the people during the days of Noah. Why would he do that? Why would he, during the patience of God, during the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few persons, that is eight, were brought safely through the water? Well, it probably was that because, think about what the flood represented. The flood represented a universal judgment. For sin. And out of the universal judgment of sin, eight persons, eight people were saved by faith. That is exactly what Christ had just accomplished on the cross. And so to be able to go to what represented all of humanity at that time, all of the people who had been condemned because of uh, their unrighteousness, this was not a message of salvation. So don't understand if you've got the translation that says preached. It doesn't mean preached like a gospel message. The the better tr- translation might be proclaimed. It was it was a proclamation of his victory. It was a proclamation that he was now alive in the spirit. That is, that the separation from the Father that he endured on the cross, he is no longer enduring. It was a message of victory and power that the resurrection would vindicate in just a matter of days. Um. This is precisely Peter's point now in verse 21 where he corresponds that back to us. He uses the flood as an illustration, and he says in verse 21, corresponding to that, meaning the salvation from, uh, from the water, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, not water, not the physical act, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So you take these verses out of context, you've got the ingredients for a nice cult. But if you keep them in context, Peter is saying, baptism, if you understand it the way I'm using it, Peter says, I'm not talking about water baptism in which water baptism is not what saves you. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ that cleanses you from all of your sin. Baptism represents that. Years ago, I heard about an odd work of modern art. Uh, An artist had attached to a chair a loaded shotgun with the barrel pointed at the chair. And the gun had a timer on it, to discharge at an undetermined time, sometime within the next 100 years. So in other words, you got a chair, you got a shotgun aiming right at the chair, and it's got a timer on it that at a random time over the next century, that shotgun's going to go off and blow that chair to bits. And here's the thing, believe it or not, droves of thrill-seekers sat in that chair It's almost like, you know, Russian roulette at the Dallas Museum of Art. By staring, the way you would look at the exhibit is you would sit in the chair and you would stare point blank into the barrel of that shotgun. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but this is true. This is true. Most uh, strange, where they say truth is stranger than fiction. You know, what I would have given to sneak up behind one of them, and poke him in the ribs and go, boom! (laughs) Most of us would never dream of taking such a foolish gamble as that. And yet, how many people aware of the fact that they could die today and are aware that the gospel is there for their taking? It's no different than sitting in front of a loaded shotgun without knowing the time that it's going to go off. Jesus, in his great mercy, has died on the cross for all of our sins. And if for some reason you're here today and you've not placed your faith in the one who has died for your sins, don't go another day. There's no need. The good news is that he has paid for your sins completely. And if that's a message that you've already believed, as I have, then the good news is now our challenge. As the, as the novice said unwittingly, Let those who know tell those who don't. Let's bow for the benediction. Father, thank you for the life of Peter. Thank you that you inspired him not just to be present, um, to follow Christ through the Gospels, but that as an older man, he sat down with his pen and reflected. And the Spirit of God so inspired him to write First and Second Peter, that we could read this text today and to uh, not just be encouraged but to be challenged. To be challenged not to respond in kind but to respond with a blessing because that's what Jesus did, and we want to live a life that is a good life, a life that is satisfying, one that has a good conscience and that can sleep at night uh, with a clear head. Father, we ask those of us who know Christ that if there is any today that doesn't, that if they are here and your grace has brought them to this place, that their heart would be opened to the gentle words of our kind and loving Savior who gave up his life, that their life might be saved. They would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. What an amazing portion of Scripture. Sometimes living the good life is simply having a good perspective on life in the midst of a world that desperately needs to see it and hear it. We have a hope that goes beyond Disney World. We have a hope that's rooted in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, a certain future that lasts longer than a bank account. What a wonderful message to share. Next week, we look at what the Bible says are your best weapons to have a victorious Christian life. You want a victorious Christian life? Well, that's next week. Until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.